HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. New York chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State. Certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. This is Mike Edison, host of Art Senses of Seizures. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, please visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, chef and owner of Samisa and Ed and Bev's restaurants in Brooklyn. Each episode, I'll be sitting down with a guest as we trace the line of their career through a one-on-one conversation about their childhood, first jobs in food, and the path they chose that led them to become the chef or restaurateur they are today. From how it all began to where they are now and everything in between, this is The Line. My guest today is Billy Durney, pitmaster and owner of Hometown Barbecue in Red Hook. Billy began barbecuing at home as a hobby and as a way to relax after his stressful job in private protection that often took him out of the country for long stretches of time. After a lot of trial and error, he decided to leave the security profession behind him and reinvented himself as a pitmaster, opening Hometown Barbecue in Red Hook in 2013, just in time for Sandy to reach New York City. I'm happy to have my friend here to talk about cooking over fire. Of course, we're going to talk about some meat, and I'd like him to share what it's like to open one of the nation's best barbecue joints right here in New York. Billy, thanks for being here, man. Brother Eli, happy to be here. Yeah, man. I sound like Barry White in this thing. <laughs> you sound real sexy. Dang. Um, so I wanted to start just by talking about the transition that you made from yeah. security expert, backyard barbecue enthusiast, um, to, to restaurant owner. You know, there, there are thousands thousands of people in the United States that barbecue every weekend. And they're like, my barbecue's good. Their friends say, you know, my brisket's uh, amazing. Maybe you should sell it somewhere. Um, it's a huge risk uh, to financially and mentally put yourself into a restaurant concept. And as you and I both know, most restaurants fail. Um, so it's sort of a bad business decision. Why did you, de- <laughs> why did you decide to, uh, to leave your, your original career and, and start barbecuing? Yeah, I get asked this a lot, and um, I mostly don't give the answer, but I'm going to give the answer to you because you're my brother. Um, For me, 
the love of barbecue and the love of cooking with wood really was inspired by growing up. Um, my grandparents had a cabin in the country, and I remember seeing my grandfather cutting wood and putting it on a fire, not necessarily cooking with it, um, but uh, just just the, the lore of that open fire, um, really primal uh, thing got me going. And then, you know, with uh, traveling around the world with my protectees, it really was um, kind of a license for me to see great food and to be around great food without even knowing I had a love for it. Um, and I had a, my daughter was five at the time, and I was traveling a lot, about four months internationally, and um, I had a girlfriend at the time who was in the entertainment business, so she kind of understood where I was going and what I was doing, but I was away from my daughter too much, and I wanted to find something that, at the time, I thought... <laughs> could you know work less and didn't realize that i'd be working you thought, oh, owning a restaurant will i'll have plenty of free time. yeah yeah i didn't realize that 90 hours a week was like uh you know that's just what some people you know some people did a lot more than that so um but it allowed me to at least be in the same city the same state and um so i started this thing as a hobby in my backyard after traveling and seeing you know gauchos cooking on on open fires in south america and then traveling all around texas and you know falling in love with louis miller barbecue in taylor texas and you know um all of those things inspired me to say hey maybe i can do this i have no idea what the heck i'm doing but maybe i can do this and i i felt you know i was just talking to my friend alex smith on the way here about the processes of cooking because you know i'm in the middle of this other venture i'm doing with you know, fried chicken, which is a complete different set of sciences and rules and, you know, um, with frying. So I wanted to really, I said, if I'm going to do this, then I want to try to, you know, put my own stamp on it, get my own style about it. So I traveled all around the country learning how to cook barbecue everybody else's way and finally came home essentially penniless after two years of traveling, um, eating all around the country and abroad as well. And just, decided, wow, I don't want to do anything like that. I don't want to do any regional barbecue, and I don't want to do, you know, if I'm going to make this food, then I want it to speak to the food that I grew up around, which is a multi-ethnic cultural cuisine that that you have to eat when you grow up in Brooklyn, New York. It's cool because there's, you know, there's regional barbecue, as you said, right? There's Texas barbecue. There's the Carolina barbecue. But you went out and got this world education that yeah. informs your barbecue. But you're a New York guy. So I would like to hear a little bit more about those travels. You know, like yeah, where yeah. did you go that you saw something that then now you're transferring into your your hometown, your New York style barbecue? Well, I mean, there there I, I have talks with other uh, pit guys and very well-known barbecue people around the world and, and we you know we're all very good friends at you know at this level and you know we talk all the time about their experiences eating great food or where they you know where they've eaten great barbecue you know most of us don't eat barbecue that's just a fact you know we've we've been around and eaten so much barbecue that um unless we're eating each other is very 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 often we're not eating barbecue um some of the things that changed it for me was we're in Texas uh, as far as just falling in love with the old, authentic, passionate way to cook food, which is literally tending a fire very carefully with science applied to it for a very long period of time. And, um, you know, most importantly, it was, you know, 
anywhere you go in South America, people are cooking on open fires. And um, so you could travel through any country, whether it be, you know, it just doesn't matter. Uruguay, you know, there, there are people on the beach cooking animals and hand, hand, um, hand cranking, hand cranking the animals yeah. over live fires. And it's just, it's, 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 it's the most beautiful way to pay homage back to that animal is to cook it very carefully. So anyway, my travels definitely South America and then definitely through the United States, but particularly two locations, um, Louis Miller Barbecue in Taylor, Texas, which I've talked about. And then um, one of the most beautiful places you'll see a hog cooked is in Aiden, North Carolina at my great friend Sam Jones um, at Skylight Inn. And now Sam has Sam Jones Barbecue in Winterville as well. So to see them take animals you know from from the from the field and then get them to their pits and and archaically cook them over coals and wood fire very carefully you know a lot of people think that these these cooks are like backwoods dudes that don't really apply any science but these guys are some of the brightest cooks when you're talking about um, barbecue, there's a reason there's only a handful of memorable barbecue restaurants that you've probably ever eaten in your life. And the reason is most people don't apply science to it. You know, when our good friend Aaron Franklin just wrote his book, he essentially gave everybody the key to what we know and what we delved really d- deep into. And if you're smart enough to go buy Aaron Franklin's book, then you'll understand exactly how I cook barbecue, exactly how he cooks barbecue. And for that matter, the 20 people that you know, are cooking it at the highest levels in the world, what they're reaching for when they're cooking their barbecue, which is applied science. It's both so simple and it's so complex. It really is just fire and meat, but then it's so much deeper than that. You're talking about timing. You're talking about resting. You're talking about having it in an enclosed chamber versus air hitting it when it's just, you know, on a grill. Right. Um, We'll get that to that in a little bit, but I want to jump back to Louis Mueller and Texas and just talk about a little bit about, mentors and the barbecue community, which is, it's a tight knit community, right? Right. I mean, you came from the outside. I know a little bit about this. I came to New York kind of as a late cook and like, there's ways to work yourself up. And then you kind of did the backwards thing. A lot of people work in restaurants for a little while. They say, I'm going to go travel the world for six months. I'm going to go for a year after I've been cooking for a while. You did the whole exploration thing. You found those flavors while you're working in a different career. Then you came and said, barbecue is what I want to do. How did you, uh, gain entry into like a what's what's really like a tight club basically it really is a tight club i i I had no i had no um you know i'm a really humble person and i come kind of with a lot of knowledge world knowledge of my own and you know i don't ask for anything for free i want to make sure that i'm you know getting the information from the best people so the first thing i actually did was I actually went out and uh, sought Mike Mills, who is, um, you know, the the pitmaster and owner of 17th Street Bar and Grill in um, Murfreesboro, Illinois. And I went out and took a class with Mike and Amy Mills, uh, Amy's his daughter, who runs, you know, on cue, you know, uh, consulting. And, you know, they do a great job. And they had this whole hog course where I met Wayne Miller and uh, Sam Jones and Pat Martin and all these brilliant Um, cooks, barbecue cooks who are in those top 20 talks, you know, and um, so for me, I came like with my hat in hand and just say, you know, I'm a sponge. I want to be here, you know, use and abuse me and don't, don't, you know, 
coming from a profession where I worked, traveled all around the world with celebrities and, you know, people thought I, you know, I had this glamorous life and I just wanted to be accepted into this little crew as someone who's going to really work really hard. And then I wanted to, and what I think I have done and what I'm really proud of and what I hope to continue to do is to say, I totally admire and respect what they're doing, but I just want to do my own thing. I just want, I really want Brooklyn Barbecue to mean something to somebody one day. And for me, that really means dipping into the flavors that we experience here, whether they be Indian or Israeli or Moroccan or we have every beautiful makeup of lovely colors and rainbows here in, 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 um, in Brooklyn. And I want to put my stamp on it that way. But they accepted me very quickly because they knew I was fiercely, fiercely dedicated to the craft. And I wanted to cook on all wood fire. Um, at, at the very beginning, I bought an old hickory pit, which is a great pit and great family owns that company. Um, but within weeks, within weeks, I knew that that wasn't who I was or what I wanted to cook on. And I started cooking out in the front of my restaurant with a with an offset with a reverse flow smoker and started cooking on open fires. So they accepted me really quickly. Um, Wayne Miller and I, I would consider him one of my and Sam Jones, for that matter. I consider some of the best friends, Pat Martin, that I have in my life right now. So um I guess that question is better asked for them. Um, but for me, I think I got accepted because they really knew that I was the real deal and I really cared about what they cared about, which is, you know, keeping this beautiful community and family alive. Because barbecue is a culture. It's a community. It's not, it's not a cuisine to me, although, you know, it, it is America's cuisine it's not to me like i think of america now that i'm dabbling so hard into southern food and fried chicken cooking and you know that to me is americana like you know greens and grits and biscuits like that's when i think of an americana style meal that's what i think of barbecue is this beautiful lovely culture community you know but in the east coast as you know as as you know Barbecue is an event we went to, not something we did, right. not in an act you know, of cooking. So I had to learn very quickly um, that, you know, smoking meats uh, in, on indirect fire was a lot different from, you know, watching my dad burn freaking hamburgers. I, I love that, you know, you traveled all around the world with these, you know, celebrities on private jets. And then you show up and you're kind of in awe of these guys that have been doing something that's totally off. really old school. You know, yeah, yeah. it's such a... Uh, it's a it's a tangible activity. Use your hands. Use your eyes. You have to be very present when you're making barbecue. Absolutely. Um, I am familiar with a Southern Pride, which is probably sacrilege to you. It's more of like a, <laughs> a set it and forget it type of right. smoker, right? Yeah. But you're you went you made the decision. You're using it for something completely different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a it's a specific tool for what I had used it for. But when we're talking about you doing barbecue, you know, you're using a uh, use 108 inch Lang reverse flow, right? Uh, that's one of them. One and of then them. Aaron okay. Aaron Franklin built me two um, two replicas of his cookers, and we use those as well. So so, so for people that really want to like nerd out right now on barbecue and the actual tools that you use, yeah. can you just that's qu- what I love talking about. Can you most. just quickly explain reverse flow? Yeah. And sure. also talk a little bit about uh, tending the actual fire and what it's like to yeah. either you or have your guys out there 
yeah, still yeah. Let's fire let's all put night. that. Let's put that to bed too. Like right now, it's not me anymore. It's you know okay. Mike, Mike Conlon and, and the crew. Right. Um. All you know, I, I'll jump in if needed now. But you know, my my job at the restaurant has is you know more tapping tables and making sure customers are mm-hmm. are really really uh, tended to. And when I'm not in the restaurant at all, because I have other things we're working on at hometown, meaning the fried chicken and some other projects I'm working on. You know, we have a crew that we've trained and have worked so tirelessly that, you know, it's really about the team now. And, you know, I'm just, you know, the, the bearer of, of, of the brand. Um, so I want to get that right away, that there's yeah. a bunch of, of course, human a lot beings. Of guys, that a lot of guys that are, are doing hard, a lot of working, the hard work. Yes, yeah. they are. And I want to make sure that cool. that's said. Of so, course. Yeah, that's um, great. Because that's that's the they're, they're the engine. They're the backbone to this. And, you know, I, I did create all this. They are my recipes. They are my techniques. But these guys live them and breathe them for me now every Every day and you know I can't thank them enough for, for all the hard work so um, but as far as reverse flow smokers and offset smokers which is the two smokers we use at hometown we're also using oiler pits now which are these massive massive uh, smokers used uh, uh, made in Mesquite Texas and uh, just a beautiful company from a company called JNR and they're now servicing a lot of the barbecue around the country uh, for people who want to be able to cook indoors um, and still get a fully all wood fire no electric no gas assist no nothing so uh, but the difference between reverse and offset which are the most two common stick burners are the offset smoker like the ones aaron franklin uses and the ones that he built for us have a chimney stack on one side and the firebox on the complete opposite side and what the firebox i'm sorry what the chimney and stack system do which is the most important part of this is they drag the fire from the firebox over the meat, then out the chimney and out the flue. And we we call that a top heat. So if you stuck your arm under the grates for, for the smokers brilliantly built by Aaron, it's cool under there. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so, there's, so literally the firebox is at... And that's a whole nother com- conversation about wood combustion, but the firebox is probably in the 850 to 900 degree range. And three feet away, I have my arm under the racks and it's totally cool where the top of the racks are cooking at 275 degrees or whatever temperature we're cooking at at the time. It's amazing. It's just like a, it's such a massive differential in such a small area. Yeah. And that's what's affecting the Yeah, and that's in his design. That's yeah. his design. I mean, you know, other, other offset smokers do the same thing, but he has this little tiny, you know, I don't want to say what he, how he builds right. them, but <laughs> he, he, um, he builds them in such an interesting way with, with the minutia pushing the air and pushing everything where it needs to go for this perfect top heat. And, you know, I, I don't have to sit here and give him uh, uh, more, con- you know, he's, he's people have heard of him. Before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but, but they should know, you know, yeah. how good of a human being he is and how, um, how talented he is at also making smokers. So the other thing is the reverse flow smoker. So the reverse flow smoker made by Lang, who I started and cut my teeth on, and I still use to this day and, and, and love. The difference is the chimney and the firebox are on the same side. There's a steel baffle plate on the very bottom. So the fire, or the smoke never touches the meat until it's released under the baffle plate. So the offset smoker just pulls right from the fire over the meat. So this comes under the meat, under a steel plate, the fire and the smoke, and then releases out the top and then kind of 
puts a, a whole smoke on the entire section of the meat. Well, what's trial and error like on that? How many times? Oh, it's impossible. It, if you ask people who cook on offset smokers, if they come to New York and try to borrow my langs, they burn the S out of everything. Really? Yeah, yeah, because it's a totally different heat. One's a convected heat, one's a, one's a radiant heat, and that one is coming from the bottom and one's coming from the top. Yeah, I burned so many briskets starting out on langs because I didn't really know what to do with them until, until you figure it out. Now I can dial that thing in for hours and hours and hours. Um, we were cardboarding our briskets, our bottoms, for, for many years, and we still do. Um, on the legs, protecting them with a piece of cardboard. Is that yeah, what yeah. That means? Literally, oh. we'd cut cardboard and put them under the briskets, and people would. I'd take photos, and people would be like, "Well, what the heck are you doing with that cardboard?" But it was just so. There's actually a it blocker. was just a technique yeah. to, to so they didn't burn out the bottoms. And uh, you know, after six hours, we would we would cover the bottoms. We'd got enough smoke penetration, and you know, there's there's wives' tales and fallacies about smoking meat also. Smoke doesn't live inside the barbecue. It lives on top of it, you know. Um, that's why people who use heavy mops or um, a lot of sauce on their barbecue, it doesn't taste smoky at all because that kind of washes the smoke away. Um, you know, the, the smoke ring is, is a... Is a, is a Science experiment with nitric oxide. You know, it's a whole uh, experiment I could talk about as well. But <laughs> but as far as the smoke on the meat, it actually lives on top of the meat, not inside. The so meat. you t- you touched on a, uh, a couple interesting things there about differentiate differentiation between people around when they come right so right. if someone comes and they try to use your lang they're gonna burn it somebody yeah, yeah. uses a mop somebody uses offset smoke so i'm gonna ask you a question right now how can anyone actually say who has the best barbecue does that question bother you because really how would you compare how do you compare a carolina to a texas how do you compare a wet to a dry yeah. um is that a question that when all you guys are together you say this is irrelevant, or is this an important thing to actually kind of drill down and find out who has the best barbecue? Uh, I, we don't. We don't care. I can tell you that. Yeah. For, for, you know. I mean, I'm trying to cook the best barbecue. There, let let that be known. That's there's no mistake about that. I want, um, but I'm trying to do that for my guests. I'm not trying to do that for my ego because I don't have one. And the, the the great people who work for me will attest to that. And my friends as well. I'm very humble. I'm egoless, but I do want to make the best barbecue in, in the world. That, that just If you're not in it for that, if you're not trying to make the best food in your lane, then what are we doing? You know, what, what, why are we here you know, to do something else? You know, when I was in protection, I, would, you know, I was in it all the way. You know, and if, if that meant you know, being in harm's way for the people I've signed on to protect, and that was it. The same way with food. Like, I'm not trying to make the second best fried chicken or the second best barbecue. But we don't care in the sense that we're not, we're not searching it out. Like, we're not sitting around a table like, oh, my God, is Aaron's better than Wayne's? Is Wayne's better than Sam's? Is Sam's better than Pat's? We don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, let, let, let people decide that. It all has its place. And like I said, barbecue is a community. It's a culture. We're all very, very close. Um, and we're not competitive with each other, in my mind. I'm not uh, at all. So... North Carolina, Lexington Barbecue, Memphis Barbecue, Kansas City Barbecue, Georgia, Virginia, Texas, it all has its place. For me, I don't care for the barbecue in a lot of the places I just mentioned. Taste-wise, doesn't do it for me. I don't understand why they think they're great barbecue cooks. 
I'll probably piss a lot of people off right now, but you know, to me, if I'm gonna, I, I make this very clear. If I'm if I'm gonna travel and get barbecue right now, I'm going to Texas, or I'm going to Eden, North Carolina. That's it. That's where I'm going. I mean, that's what I enjoy. I'll stop and see Rodney Scott in in, uh, in South Carolina too. That's one of the main things that I really love about food is that while it can be polarizing, it can also be about community and it invites a huge amount of discussion. Right. Um, and you know, I I wanted to hear what you were going to say about it, but I think that it's it's a fun activity to kind of go around and say like, this is my personal favorite. It is. Why, yeah. why do you like it? Why yep. do I like it? Um, well, we want, we want our customers to do that. Yeah, exactly. And we encourage our customers to go to other people's barbecue all the time, all the time. You know, um, you know, I don't want to name every barbecue right. restaurant in New York, um, but we encourage people to go and try other people's things, especially if they're doing anything unique. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about the uniqueness of the menu. I right. I'm obsessed with turkey and Yo, I'm obsessed with turkey. You have crazy turkey. <laughs> Thank you. And I don't know what it is about turkey, but it seems to be like this afterthought in the food chef community. <laughs> That's a mistake. That it's that it's kind of like a, a garbage item that like only hits your table on Thanksgiving. Right. And that really that bothers me because I could eat turkey all day. I just had my hands on the turkeys that are going to be served today. Uh-huh. Like, and just a touch, you know, like it's amazing. Turkey. How, how, I, I agree with you. I'm how, glad you said this because no we. Order? I judge cooks, pit cooks. Uh, I hate to call people pit masters. By the way, I think mm-hmm. it's the stupidest title on the oh. planet. It just doesn't make sense to me. I think you have to be 70 years of age or better to get a title of master of something. I don't know. Well, you should be, you know, in ninja school or you know. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like, of course. Come on. It's, you, you need time. My card, to, my card says Firemaker. I like that better. <laughs> All right, cool. We'll stick with Firemaker. But, um, I, but, but about, anyway. Yeah, but yeah, about yeah. the turkey, I yeah, mean, yeah. like, why do you think that people uh, think that it's just like a Thanksgiving item? What yeah. prompted you to smoke the turkey? Is that a traditional barbecue thing that a lot of people are doing? Well, it's traditional to Texas, and I, I keep talking about Texas, but and, and I'm not by any means a Texas barbecue restaurant, but I definitely did learn some great things about cooking barbecue in Texas. I learned more important uh, how to hold meat better by, you know, you know, people talk about Wayne being my mentor all the time, but really one of the main things he did was to to help me um, learn how to hold meat better. But anyway, turkey is very, is well known and well sought after there, and it's made really well. The difference between our turkey and their turkey is they dip in butter. I think that's ridiculous. I don't understand why they do If you cook it perfect, that's like, it's, it's, got like, the moisture it's arbitrary there, to yeah. me. It's like, you know, you made cereal good, do you dip that in butter <laughs> to make it better? And no, this doesn't make sense to me. So so that technique that they use out there doesn't make sense to me. We use salt and pepper and then smoke it for three and a half hours, hold it a certain way to keep the moistness in, which is, I think, a secret to our cooking is more in the in the process of how we hold our meat and then um, and then slice it, you know, perfectly every time. So it should be moist and tender and a little salty and the simplicity of cooking a perfect po- piece of poultry or cooking, you know, if you're going to test a chef out, you're going to, you know, me, I'm, I, I want him to make me eggs or something, you know, something that seems so arbitrary, but is so hard to do great. And yeah. turkey's one of those things. And, you know, I really, I didn't know what you were going to say as far as what dish you like, but that makes me feel so good because that's the one I like the most. And we have a sandwich around that turkey now in the restaurant that's crazy. I mean, I'm not, I'm, you know that I'm a fan. We're good buddies. So, yes. like, I've been in a bunch of times, and, you know, I could go through the whole menu of everything that I love, but, you know, the, 
it's weird because the things that actually jump out at me from the menu yeah. are, are the turkey and also the lamb bami, right? Yeah. And and neither of those every good chef in New York probably said that comes and eats in our place has different things, but a lot of them say those two things. And I mean, I I mean that with a great deal of respect because like. You know, it's to me. It's like, well, of course, the barbecue at Billy's spot is good. The 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 ribs are good. The brisket yeah. is good. But like, um, I haven't been to Texas and eaten yeah, any yeah. Texas barbecue. I, I've been to some spots around the United States. I've been to St. Louis, but like, I don't think I, you see that lamb by me anywhere no, else, know. right? You, you yeah, don't we, see those things, and no. so you know, that's we're proud of the dishes that no one is doing. So, you know, the lamb belly by me. Is is crack? It's straight crack. It's so fatty and so tender and so it moist. Haunts my dreams. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I've, I've, I'm so proud of that dish. Um, it's definitely the number one dish of all cooks in New York City that love to come eat in hometown. That's their number one. Um, but we do, you know, Jamaican jerk baby back ribs is is my favorite dish on the menu right now. We do Chinese sticky ribs, and you know, we we make our own um, you know tacos from scratch, and you know, we do a Oaxacan taco, and uh, we do a three day marinated Oaxacan chicken dish, which is probably my second favorite dish on the menu right now. So. You know, we are multi-layered, multicultural. I'm working on an Indian dish right now with making naan and, and doing. Um, um, is is that is that all skewers? Coming, is that all coming from the fact that you're a New York guy and it's that's the only food? coming from that? Because you grew up where in exactly? Flatbush? In Flatbush, yeah, so, yeah. Flatbush. When you're, when you're growing up, I mean, those restaurants are like you've got Caribbean They're, restaurants. You've got, uh, yeah, yeah. You know. I mean, I grew up in a primarily, predominantly Irish, Italian, Jewish area, mm-hmm. um, but within a five ten minute walk of there was you know West Indian, uh, Caribbeans, you know uh, Vietnamese. Chinese, Korean, you know, just a melting pot of people on our doorstep. Not to mention I went to a multicultural high school, South Shore High School in Canarsie, that I had, you know, tons of ethnic friends. And, and you know, it, it, I, I pull from dropping into my friend's place in the Vanderveer Projects or the same thing, hanging out in my friend's Korean mom's house and then making, you know, Bippity bop or whatever they call it. You know what yeah, I mean? It's it, like it's it, it allows you to pull from what you had uh, traveling, what you had growing up, and that's cool because then that filters back into your restaurant and yeah. that that differentiates it from another barbecue well, spot. That's, that's our only goal at hometown, Eli. Yeah. Our goal, Eli, is every single day to try to create delicious dishes that represent Brooklyn and New York as a city. And I, I you know, I don't want to be. We're starting to do a lot of live fire grilling too. I put it about a year and a half ago. I put an Argentinian asado grill inside the restaurant, and we're finishing our meats on a, on live fire mm-hmm. right now. Um, and we're going to start. We're going to probably do a whole fish, which probably is turning a lot of people um, mad. <laughs> um, but you know what? Like, I grew up with direct fire grilling. Why not mm-hmm. represent that skill set that I've had since I'm a little kid? Um, Instead of this new one that I've learned over the last seven years, which is smoking meat. Did you um, did you grow up? Were you the barbecue guy when you were growing up? Or was that your dad? <laughs> My dad, you know, hockey pucked everything, man. <laughs> so if there was a burger on there, it tasted like a hockey puck, hot dog, sausage, hockey puck. Uh-huh. You know? It was no. I, I grew up around the worst cooks. You know, we had Friday night was pizza night, and Saturday was Chinese food night, and Frank and Beans night. And, uh-huh. 
chicken a la king was like <laughs> you know i don't know if you even know what these things are but you know it was it was you know it was a very humble thing my grandmother which is pretty much the namesake of my restaurant you know my grandmother who just passed at 92 years of age was a wonderful wonderful cook but she she came here from norway at a very young age and my uh, great-grandmother came here from ireland at a young age, and they both lived in Red Hook, so I named hometown after them. Oh, awesome. A lot of people think hometown's named after because it's my hometown, but it's not. It's named after my uh, my grandma and great grandma who immigrated here from Ireland and Norway and lived in that section of Brooklyn since you know the the, the 30s. So my roots in Brooklyn go back a long way, and my respect of the cultures here go goes back. You know, since I'm I'm a young kid, I grew up with uh, around a very you know open minded set of parents who you know. Who, who, you know, wanted me to be influenced by by a lot of different kinds of people. So, so I I I'd always wondered if Red Hook was just because you found a great warehouse space. No, if, no, no. So no. it speaks to you in a really deep way. Deep, very deep. You know, Red Hook. Let me tell you something. You know, Red Hook is the, one of the greatest communities, if not the greatest community I've ever been around. You know, people are like, oh, would you rather? You know, I grew up in the best place. Old Mill Basin for me was the the greatest area to grow up in we didn't have a train we were self you know we were self everything we hung out in the schoolyard we played ball we were all athletes you know we did our thing um, but we didn't escape out to the city until we were, had cars at 17 years of age so mm-hmm. um, you know we just chilled amongst the confines of our own our own place you know but Red Hook is this I mean, I'm speechless talking about it sometimes. It's a very special community. You have, you know, my friend Matt makes classical guitars by hand. There's glass blowers, beautiful artists. Dustin Yellen's there making this beautiful art. Um, and so many other beautiful painters, sculptors. Um, this guy, Kenny Dale, is just this crazy, beautiful painter. You know, does these crazy, colorful mosaics. And you just have, it's a melting pot of crazy hard-working people you know yeah there's all these fantastic artists that are working behind closed doors in these yeah. old beautiful warehouses that are you know over a hundred years old yeah. and uh, it's a romantic place yeah it's a it is a beautiful community yeah it is. um perhaps never more beautifully articulated than what happened right after the storm like out of tragedy comes uh it, this incredible amount of love yeah. that everyone comes together um you found the the building in Red Hook. Yep. It's for for those that don't know that that are listening. It's uh, right by the the fairway. It's yep. a couple hundred yards from the water, if that. Right. Um, and uh, so you find the location, and then you're gonna open, and then Sandy happens, and and water hits Red Hook in one of the most dramatic ways of, of anywhere yeah. around the the state or the nation yeah, devastating to the community yeah six eight feet yeah we had we had six feet um we had six feet four inches in hometown i know fairway had up in the 10 11 feet range yeah so, and we have 4600 square feet of space in that building so if you could do the math from six and a half feet of water and yeah a 4600 um, square foot space that came in and then receded on its own. Um, you know, we were five months from opening, which is pretty close, as you know, and as being a restaurateur yourself, and um, devastating. Every dollar I had, every me and my business partner, Chris Miller, I mean, everything we had was, was gone. And um, I didn't know what to do. And, you know, we, we immediately kicked into our our 
regular selves and went and helped others. And we went to the local bait and, t- you know, the local bars, bait and tackle and Brooklyn ice house and kind of got them back on their feet. I think that night they opened in candlelight and we all got drunk in there and it was the best, one of the best times ever. And, um, but we all consoled each other. We had no, you know, you know, our local councilman who wasn't a councilman at the time, Carlos Menchaca was, you know, uber supporter of ours and still is to this day. But other than Carlos and uh, one or two other local politicians, we got no state help, no federal help, nothing. I mean, they, Carlos and them were doing their best to, to get us help, but we relied on our, ourselves and, and the neighborhood to get us all back on our feet. And, you know, a lot of people were talking about me back then because... The only thing I knew to do was try to cook for the community, and we had no power. And and obviously, I think you know, and it's become a story, kind of a a Red Hook folktale now about me standing out in the street for 16 days cooking barbecue for for the people in the projects and the people who had no electricity in the community. And and although that is very true, I do want to say that um, being able to cook for that many people... um, was not only inspiring kind of my Xanax, but it was uh, a way for me to really learn unintentionally how to cook for thousands of people. And um, it was those 16 days that really gave me the confidence to be able to say, holy shit, I think I can do this because, you know, I was only cooking for maybe 100 people at a time for a little catering thing prior to the restaurant open. And then I was doing like, 70, 80 slabs of ribs a day, which what we have to do at the restaurant, and I never had done that before. So um, it put you in this position where you were doing, you wanted to feed people and you wanted yeah. to cook over fire, and that's what I would, you, yeah. whether you wanted to or not, I had to. You had to yes, do that, right? right? And, you started cooking for people outside, and you were right. using very limited resources. And Red Hook was a mess. Nope, we bought wood. I <laughs> we had no money, but we my business partner. Um, put up like 3500 bucks of his own money and bought a fridge so we can, whatever meats we were going to cook, we could put in the fridge. And then we had like 5,000 pounds of meat come and we had nowhere to put it. So I think Fairway helped us out, of course. They always do. They're, they're very neighborly. And <coughs> excuse me, some friends' restaurants uh, obviously helped. But but that's it. You know, so I'd work at, walk into the local churches with racks of ribs and they'd be like, yo, the rib man's here. And, you know, it was just a cool vibe. And Red Hook is just an amazing place. Uh, we're going to be having a huge fundraiser. One of my, I don't know if you even know this yet, but um, one of our employees passed, and um, we're having a big fundraiser on um, on September 19th, Monday, um, to, to raise money, funds for his kids to, to be able to go to school and stuff like that. So um, we're a very close-knit community. I guarantee 500 people will show up. I've had every chef in New York try to want to come cook for it, and you know what I mean? So... You know, it's it as as tight as Red Hook is. The cooking community is as tight. Um, you know, I've traveled around the country this year several times for people in need, um, just to be able to, to to lend my name and my skill to to cooking for people with charity. And every person I've ever talked to and asked in the cooking community will jump all over the opportunity to be able to help. And you know, that's, those are the kind of like-minded people that I want to surround myself with, and that's why I'm so honored to be a member of this food community here in Brooklyn and New York now, and, um, you I, know, I that's think, how we met. I, yeah, I think people respond so well to you is because, you know, uh, you know you're, you're a big, imposing guy, but you your friendship and the way that you approach people is 
really humble and like you're just coming from a place where like the food is everything and you care about the hospitality and that's what really resonated with me at first especially when I met you and then when I finally came down to the restaurant and I, I went inside um it's a pretty cavernous space, but it doesn't feel that way at all. Um, you made it feel really inviting, and you talked about touching tables and, and being um, really a part of the fabric of the community. How do you make a warehouse into a place that feels like a barbecue community center where people want to come and they, they want to spend time with you right. and they want to spend time with your food? Um, well, you know, I'm not a designer in any in any way. We have a lot of architects that come in and say, "Wow, who designed this space?" And me and my business partner laugh and we're like, "Well, we did. We we, you know, we traveled a lot and we we saw what we liked, what we didn't like. And the one thing that I wanted to have when you walked in is to make sure that you knew that you were in a, a warm place and a wood environment. So when you come into hometown. If you don't smell meat or wood when you first walk in, then you should. And I think of this of all barbecue restaurants run, you know, because if you're not cooking on wood or if you can't smell the meat when you walk into a barbecue restaurant, it's normally not a great sign. So for me, um, that was important. And then, you know, using we we had a 4000 square foot. My business partner had a 4000 square foot reclaimed barn. And we milled, and I hand-sanded every table that you sit in and every chair, uh, not chair, every table that you sit in and every bar that you sit in hometown was, I, I, I literally hand-sanded those myself. And so there's a lot of love that goes into my, that building, and I think people feel that right away. I'm, you know, obviously the line is always a, a source of contention for some, and, um, but we, the, the reason the line's there is twofold. We have a lot of people that want to come to the restaurant, and we're so honored and humbled by that. But the line allows everyone to be able to have a seat. And that's what they figured out in the South back in the day, that counter service is a really great way for a lot of people to be able to congregate and always get a seat. There's not, never been a time... Now, I know someone's going to call in and be like, I was the one person who didn't have a seat. But, you know, on a Saturday night when we have 100 and some people on a line and another 100 and some people sitting... Um, there's never an opportunity where you can't find a seat in the restaurant. And that's, that's because of the line. And then, yo, people, it's a social experiment. These are your family. These are your peers. These are your neighbors. Talk to them on that line. That's what I was just about to say. I love the line. Because, yes, you know, I do, too. I travel. I, I get on. I, I get to the airport in a cab or however I get to the airport. I fly four hours. I drive three hours and then sit on a two-hour line. Well, I don't have to do that anymore, to be quite <laughs> right. honest. But I did that for many for, for yeah. three years just to eat that piece of barbecue. And you're damn right, I talked to a lot of people on those lines. And some of the great friendships and some of the great conversations come from those barbecue lines. Talk to your neighbors, man. They really they want to know what's up. They want to know what kind of restaurant you'll be going to. You find, where out, you find out a lot about people as they're waiting in line to order. You of know, course. Like they're talking about uh, what they're doing today, what they're doing tomorrow, what's good on the menu, what they heard is good. That's you right. Know, it's talking a, about it's, sports and politics. Yes, it's, like, it's beautiful. It's yeah. good vibes all around. You yeah. know, like it's okay. Turn to your neighbor. You know what I'm saying? You yeah. know, like just say, hey, what's up? You know. What school do your kids go to? What, what have you? There's, uh, you know, some people say that, you know, uh, barbecue is the American cuisine. It's like the great equalizer. Right. Everybody likes barbecue. And I think that that is really apparent in hometown. You know, everybody you. comes down there. 
they're in line, they choose what they want, everybody sits, you know, pretty, it still has a community aspect to totally, it, even yeah. once you're sitting down and you choose your area, um, and you've got, you know, live music, um, do you think hometown is uh, is it the the full representation of, of you? Does it feel like when you open hometown, like that was um, like it's the most real version of you now after you mm. stopped doing protection and now you do barbecue? Right. Um, man, that's a great that's a question no one has ever asked me, and I've been asked a lot of questions recently. Um, wow, is it a full representation of me? I could tell you that I built hometown, or we built hometown being a place that I'd want to go and I'd want to eat and I'd want to drink and I'd want to listen to music. So a big part of that, the answer is that is yes, because it represents what I liked in many other places. Um, and I designed or put in elements of, or liquors or something that I put into the restaurant for places that I like to go. Is it a full representation of who I am? Probably not. Cause I'm opening up a fried chicken restaurant. So, and I think that really dials into uh, who I am too, because you know what masochist is going to open a thirty-five seat fried chicken restaurant and cook it from raw and cast iron? This idiot. So um, you know, I'm tackling that too right now. And mm -hmm. for me, I think that's part of who my heart is and soul is. Is just this like kid who wants to get back to the table with you know grandma putting down a nice plate of fried chicken. You know. Billy, thanks so much for being here. You're honored. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We can't wait to have you back to talk about hometown fried chicken pretty soon. Yeah, no doubt. Thanks uh, for having me, Eli. Much love, respect. All right. Thank you, everybody. Join us again for the next episode of The Line. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.